the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello and welcome to The Situation Report today. Very glad to have you with me. This is the show where we do our very best every single episode to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stalnecker, and again, very glad to have you with us. Today we are going to deal with a topic that I think most of us have just learned to live with, but we know it's not good. (laughs) Uh, The question before us today is, where does all the money go? We're going to talk about government financial oversight with an expert, someone that's been doing this for a long time, someone that has done a lot of work behind the scenes, someone whose work you are probably familiar with, even though you may not know it's him and his organization that's doing it. Uh, Our government spends our money. We tend to divorce those two things. Uh, They spend money. We have money. We forget that they're spending our money. And we need to know how they're spending it, where they're spending it, why they are spending it. We need to keep them accountable, but it is very, very difficult for us to do that. And thankfully, our guest today has devoted his life and his company to doing exactly that. Very, very grateful to have on with us today, Adam Andrzejewski. Adam is, uh, among other things, the founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com, and uh, he will explain that to us. But they really work to capture and post all disclosed spending at every level of government. Sounds like a big job and one that has to be done. Uh, Recently uh, was canceled by Forbes magazine over his coverage of Anthony Fauci. We're going to talk about all of these things. Uh, But first of all, Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate your time and uh, just, just taking some time to explain some of these bigger issues to us. Absolutely. So I think just a little bit of background on the organization that I lead and that I founded, it's openbooks.com. And so just simply summarized, our mission is every dime online in real time. And so what we do is we capture government spending. And last year we filed 47,000 Freedom of Information Act requests. 47,000. Yep. And we captured (laughs) nearly every dime taxed and spent at every level of government across the country. Not quite at the local level, but nearly. So, for instance, we have, if you're interested in who makes what in government locally across the entire country, whether it's in your school district or your municipality, your county, your township, your state, you know, we have that payroll file by name, title, and how much they make. So we captured virtually every single public employee salary and pension record at every level of government across the entire country. 25 million records last year. Yeah, that is incredible. Um, It's incredible, and it's something that I think a lot of people don't know about. We complain about what government employees make, but we really don't have an idea. How did you get into this? What's your background that that led you you to doing this? So I'm an entrepreneur. In 1997, my brother and I, we started a publishing company from scratch, from our apartments. No kidding. Over 10 years, we built it into a $20 million business. And it was always impossible. I mean, in year three, we were upside down everything that we had invested in the business. And in year, right. you know, in year six, that's the first time we out-earned our employees. 
through five years. We'd make a little bit and go back into the business. So we were an overnight success over 10 years. And that's <laughs> how it works in America. And yeah, if there was right. another dime's worth of taxes, regulations, and fees, we'd have been out of business in the early years. And hmm. that is why I dedicated, after an exit, after we sold it, you know, at that moment, after a decade in business, I was cashed out of the business, and I, I got a special gift. I, I got the opportunity to dedicate my life to public service, and I settled on this idea of transparency, and then we've, you know, we've shaken that idea like a rat terrier. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so talk about that entrepreneurial journey and the challenge, not just taxes, but the other challenges that entrepreneurs in the United States face. I live in California. Um, <laughs> California is well known for not supporting the small business owner, uh, but I think that happens across the country. What are some of the major challenges that entrepreneurs like yourself and others uh, deal with from a government, you know, kind of regulation standpoint? Well, just overall, being an entrepreneur, it's always an impossible task to be successful. But in America, you know, it's always possible. So capitalism mm -hmm. is the finest system ever created in the history of the world where you can make something of your own life. I mean, right. if this was um, our publishing business was in the yellow pages and we took on the big telephone book, telephone company publishers. They were charging a hundred, yeah. literally a hundred times more for their advertising than yeah. what we were. But we came in, we took the entire market with our concept uh, back in the day. This was before Steve Jobs invented the iPhone, of course. Uh, right. <laughs> so look, in the private sector, it's all about creative destruction. That's why you make a lot of money if you're successful in the private sector, because you have to take a lot of risk. If you look at the mm -hmm. Fortune 100 from 50 years ago, there's hardly anybody left. And, and that's the difference between the public sector, entre uh, public sector with government. They hardly ever go out of business. They don't have to worry about right. revenues. Right. Their wet revenues are coerced and not persuaded, if you don't have to worry about revenues, that's an easy business to manage. And that's why our, our bureaucrats, our public sector employees, they're supposed to make less than what people that the risk takers, the entrepreneurs in the private sector, they're supposed to make more because they have to persuade. They have to worry about revenues. They have to have a product and, and they have to deal every single day with innovation and creative destruction that rips and tears and shreds at their business model. And so that's the genius yep. of capitalism. It is, it is, uh, it's the honing of it, of individual strengths and talents and the collective honing that makes America the greatest nation ever in the history of the world. And that in a nutshell was my entrepreneurial experience um, as well. What are some things that the federal government or local governments could do to help small business owners and help, um, Entrepreneurs, I, I received uh, from our county yesterday, I think it was yesterday or the day before, an email from one of our county supervisors, and they were talking about, um, it, it was COVID relief, it was wrapped up in the COVID relief thing, but $2,500 to small business owners, and, and this is supposed to, it, it, it's a really nice thing to say we care, but that doesn't help. What can, what can uh, cities, counties, states, the federal government, what can they actually do to help small business owners find success. They need to get out of the way. You know, they're using yeah. our, our tax dollars to pick winners and lo losers in the marketplace. Sure. And government needs to get out of the way. Every time they redistribute our tax dollars to quote unquote, help a small business, um, you're basically picking a winner in that market. For example, mm -hmm. in my yeah. hometown, we've got four family jewelers. 
couple of years ago, we found that the SBA on a new entrant, a new jewelry company sprang up in town and they were a Rolex jeweler. And they took millions of dollars with a cheap, low cost financing to compete against the established jewelers already in the marketplace. Right. So the established right. jewelers, their tax dollars were being used against them locally with the new Rolex jeweler startup. Mm. And that's that's always the the moral hazard that you run into when government uses their hand right. in the marketplace. It always comes with a pernicious influence. Yeah. If you could define the role of government in small business or business startup or, uh, you know, capitalism, <laughs> what would that role be? There is one. What is that role? So, you know, it, it is to just create a level playing field. And so at, yeah. at the smallest impact, right, with the least regulation necessary to ensure fairness, uh, with the That's least good. amount of taxes, with the least amount of fees, Every time you raise taxes, you raise fees, you raise the cost of doing business, and you eliminate jobs. And you make it, you set the bar higher for the new entrepreneur to be successful. If, like I said, if there was another dime's worth of taxes, regulations, and fees in our early years, we were out of business. That company is yeah. around today. They've navigated the platform hmm. change to digital. And the, wow. a, you know, back when I was there, the average yeah. sales rep in our company out earned what the average doctor made in the state of Illinois. No kidding. And wow. our most successful yeah, well. sales reps were actually women. So these were really good jobs. Incredible. Um, man, there's so much I'd like to talk to you about business, but uh, the federal government is typically the problem. Now it's local governments. <laughs> they, they get in on the action as well, and they just make it hard. Uh, a big part of that is the corruption that you've been fighting against for uh, some time through OpenTheBooks.com. Uh, Talk about some of the corruption that you found over the years and maybe some, I don't think any of us would be surprised that there's corruption in the government, but maybe some of the things that did surprise you. You expected to find corruption, but this, this was not something I expected. What are some of those stories? So many people watching the program, they probably don't know it's us at openthebooks.com, but they will remember in the summer of 2019 how we reframed the homeless debate in the entire country by focusing on mm. San Francisco. We took the 311 call file of human waste in the public way in San Francisco, <laughs> and we put it on an interactive map. So we took nine years, 130,000 calls of human poop on city streets, and we plotted hmm. those calls. And yes, we did use brown pins, and the whole city <laughs> was brown. A picture yeah. of that map trended on national Twitter. There was a brownout yep. in the Bay Area. It was a human health catastrophe. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's one circumstance. Uh, from, uh, from August of this year, uh, I, I think this is one of the biggest stories, and I think the American people get it. Biden's hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan. Our auditors right. at OpenTheBooks.com saw that the Taliban was advancing quickly across the country in Afghanistan, and we had one question. and We sprang into action. How much U.S. military gear was going to be left behind and how much was it you know, going to cost? How much did it cost the American taxpayer? And so we published our findings at Forbes and it was national and international news. I did three minutes, for instance, on the BBC. I led their World News, this hmm. World news Tonight segment. Um, we quantified from U.S. government audit reports nearly $83 billion worth of military gear and training provided to the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Security Forces since 2001. 
But it went beyond that. You know, Brown University did a study and they found that nearly $2 trillion of American treasure went into Afghanistan. And when you look at what we, what we put into Afghanistan, we did a report on U.S. foreign aid. Afghanistan, by far, soaked up the most U.S. foreign aid than any other country. Between foreign aid at $3 billion a year and about $3 billion a year at, mil- at military gear and training, we were putting at least $6 billion a year into Afghanistan. So I took mm. a look at their gross national product. After the, we were there 20 years, we were involved literally in control of the country and nation building and funding them more than anybody else in the world. So how successful yep. were we at building their economy? Hardly successful at all. It was about an 18 to $20 billion economy. That's it. And $6 billion of it was our money. We built nothing sustainable at all in that country over 20 years. Most of what we put into that country was stolen. Look, I'm from Illinois. It's the Super Bowl of corruption, but I've never seen anything like the U.S. taxpayer treasure that we put into Afghanistan and was stolen over the course of 20 years. Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of their lives. He created the Giza Dream bed sheets. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for you and me. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. Mike's latest incredible deal is the sale of the year. Sale of the year. That means it's not going to happen again. This is the sale of the year. What is it? For a limited time, you will receive 60% off the Giza Dream Sheets that comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You will receive a set for as low as $39.99. For a limited time, with any purchase, you will receive Mike's soft cover book free when you use promo code SITREP. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code SITREP. Along with this offer, you will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. For those of you that would rather use the phone, and some of you are out there, you know who you are, call 1-800-870-0283, use the promo code SITREP, or MyPillow.com and use the promo code SITREP. Absolutely incredible. These are the stories that uh, so often get lost. Just We hear the talking points, and we... Uh, so we, our organization, the organization that I work for, we spent a lot of time, I work with veterans, and so we spent a lot of time talking about Afghanistan, thinking about Afghanistan, uh, instrumental in much of the evacuation of Afghanistan. And so we talked about a lot of these issues, but when you put dollar amounts on it, it puts it in a very different perspective. And I don't think that most people connect that to, these are our dollars. <laughs> these are our uh, we, we paid taxes, and these are the dollars that you're talking about. When you use big numbers in the billions, um, it's absolutely incredible. It has a profound impact on our economy as well. Right. I mean, one of, our, you know, one of the, the points that I like to make is we turn the Taliban now into a major U.S. arms dealer for the next right. 10 years. <laughs> I mean, they're yeah. not sophisticated, but they know how to shoot machine guns. They know how to take grenade sure. launchers to the black market monetize them and fund terrorist networks. We put 600,000 weapons into Afghanistan. You know, 350,000 rifles, M4s and M16s, and 65,000 machine guns and 25,000 grenade launchers. We put 75,000 military vehicles into the country. 
50,000 light and medium tactical vehicles, 22,000 Humvees. Each Humvee costs the American taxpayer approximately, on average, $91,000. We left behind mm -hmm. 1,000 mine-resistant vehicles. Those things start at 300 grand, go up to three-quarters of a million dollars. You know, the Taliban had 75,000 fighters, and we left them 200 armored personnel carriers to now shuttle their fighters around the country. I mean, it's just, we yeah. left, you know, if we ever go back in, we left 16,000 pieces of night vision and thermal imaging devices in the country, we'll have lost the nighttime advantage. When I was in Iraq in 2003, uh, I remember that was one of the, the big points that was always made is that we have the advantage at night because there is no, you know, the Iraqi army at the time had, they had some, but it was very little uh, night vision equipment, and we could fight at night, we could move at night, we could do those things, and they couldn't. But you're absolutely right. We have now equipped the bad guys with everything they need to fight us on their terms, and that's a, that's a bad situation. Do you, do you find it challenging when you're using numbers like that <laughs> to really paint a picture of how bad it is? I, I, some people are just not connected to numbers. Uh, I think more and more Americans are, you know, moving further away from understanding math, and that's, that's a bad thing. But do you find it challenging to communicate just how significant those numbers are? I, I actually don't. We have a, a phrase on our team, facts tell, stories sell. I do, I do think you have to tell a story around the numbers. Yeah. But I think, you know, yeah. I, I believe that regular people are the repository of moral values and genius in this country. Mm. And so did our founders believe that. And that's what the American experiment is premised on. It's premised on yeah. individual rights because we have enough agency to run our own lives. And I believe that. So I put all the facts out there, but I do try to tell that's stories uh, to, make the, to make the facts resonate. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think it was the New York Times this week. It was it the New York Times? I'm not sure. I might get that wrong. But I put out a story and said, this is just too complicated for normal people to understand. So we're not going to report on it. And uh, man, yeah, I've that's never felt crazy. That yeah, I, yeah, it's I, crazy. I believe that regular people, you know, like I said, they are the repository of values and and intelligence in this country. Yeah, that's good. Um, man, a lot more there. What are some of the more common, <laughs> if you will, areas of corruption? Things that are happening all the time. Again, most of us don't think about it or we just accept it. But what's happening all the time? What are some of, uh, some of the other issues that we should be focusing on? Well, right there in California where you're based, there's a huge issue. So we you know, we collect, there, there are a lot of them. You can, you can pick one. There, there are quite a few well, here. Here's yes. something that's right in our wheelhouse. So, so at the federal level, we had the federal checkbook all the way back to 2001. Until his passing about two years ago, former U.S. Senator Tom Coburn was our honorary chairman. Hmm. And he had opened the federal checkbook up with then U.S. Senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. And so we, yeah. we've got the federal checkbook going back about 20 years. 49 out of 50 states, we have their state checkbook. Now, back in 2012, I had to sue the Illinois Republican comptroller, uh, Judy Bartopinka, for the Illinois checkbook. We won that. In 2018, we had to sue the Republican state auditor in Wyoming, Cynthia Cloud. We won that one. So it was time in 2020, right ahead of the pandemic, to sue the California yeah. comptroller, Betty Yee. Mm. And we did that. And it, the case took two years. And Betty Yee made the argument in court and we didn't ever think that the judge was going to buy this argument. She actually argued 
that the burden on her office to show you the taxpayer where they spend our money outweighs the public interest in the data we never thought the judge was going to buy it he looked diligent mm. the whole case for two years he looked thoughtful his body language showed us that he wasn't buying their case so after oral argument uh, closed during summary judgment the judge took two months slowed everything down and wrote his opinion and even though the state admitted they paid 50 million bills last year for more than 300 billion dollars the judge we get nothing the judge came in with the order we don't get a single transaction of state spending it is a horrible mm. ruling it is it's absolutely ridiculous in a representative republic that the representatives can claim for the good of the people they don't have to produce the record of where they spent the people's right. money it's utterly absurd what changed with that judge what what was behind that decision everyone asks and that's all i know right so yeah. it is it's odd when we think about people you know speaking of california like nancy pelosi and other politicians uh, sometimes we'll see a list of, you know, their net worth. Nancy Pelosi's worth X. She's made this over the years. Where does that money come from? When we look at these politicians who are worth millions of dollars, and yet they make $170,000 a year, um, is that corruption? Is that something else? Uh, where does that come from? So at OpenTheBooks.com, you know, we, we follow government money. We do hold, for instance, Congress accountable. We've done oversight reports on, you know, following the money in Congress, but specific to Pelosi, you know, sometimes the big scandal is what's legal. Congress writes the right. rules. Sure, sure. You know, yeah, sure. the rules are lax. She might not have broken the law and she's amassed a fortune, you know, maybe from inside information, right? Right, uh, right. I mean, she's in the halls of power. She's in every single smoke-filled back room. And if she's monetizing that legally, she's made a made a fortune. So, yeah. um, you know, being from Illinois, you know, oftentimes what we showcase is entirely legal. And that's the scandal. Yeah. Well, what an interesting take. It's not that they're breaking the law. Um, so here's what we've created laws Congress. that allow them to do that. Here's what we found in Congress. It is entirely legal at arm's length. That's the key at arm's length. For a federal grant recipient to hire the member of Congress from their huh. district, employ that member while the member sits on an appropriation committee conferring mm. the grants back to the employer <laughs> of the member. That's entirely legal. We showcased a number of those circumstances in an oversight report a year and a half ago. So an organization hires as a consultant or whatever they call them, a sitting member of Congress who then awards them with a contract of some kind. And that's not illegal. So, so these are grant recipients and the grant member sits correct. on okay. the appropriating uh, committees and the grants keep flowing to the nonprofit while the nonprofit hires the member of Congress. Unbelievable. Wow. Yep. So as as American citizens, some of what we need to look at is not what's legal or illegal, but 
the process or the procedure that allows legal corruption, if you will, to take place. So here's another circumstance. And this, you know, we'll break this right here on the podcast and we'll come out with a full report shortly. We've identified five nonprofits that take in more than $100 million in the last five years in federal grant making. And they have sponsored over a thousand trips. They've paid for the trips for members of Congress and their staff. So they're, they, and again, at arm's length, all of this is legal, right? But how, what genius is that? Yeah. Those bills come before those members of Congress. Right. They're never going to strip that grantee's funding from the bill. They've preserved $100 million worth of funding over the next five years by purchasing 1,000 trips for members in their staff. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Man, incredible. Um, well, I'd like to go down that road for a long time, but we won't. Hey, the um, system's rigged. <laughs> and guess what? That was 2016 presidential election. Bernie Sanders on the left and Donald Trump on the right. And they both had eerily similar themes. The system's rigged and it's rigged for insiders. And guess what? Now more than ever. So let me ask you this. I, I, I still want to get to the Forbes, uh, <laughs> Forbes um, <laughs> issue, but... With that said, what what do Americans do? I, I so I'll speak for myself. Often I hear stories like the one that you just told, and I just go, "This is just how it is. There's nothing I can do about it. There's got to be something at some point that we can do about it. Yes, what what can is. we do about it? So with OpenTheBooks.com, what's the goal? I mean, what are we trying to accomplish, and, well, we, and what do we do? We believe transparency revolutionizes U.S. public policy and politics. Just like, you know, scientists mapped the human genome, ushered in a new era of yeah. medicine. If, mm. if you know and can track in real time how government spends your money, we believe that people will vote better, bad actors will self-censor, that we'll have a new day in governance and public policy in this country. And it starts at the local level. So what you saw in Virginia, yeah. that revolution needs to happen everywhere across the, sure. across the entire country. So, so yeah. we actually have an initiative this year to train parents in their local school districts mm, to be good. able to hold yeah, those good. school districts accountable using the data in our database and a watchdog model that we've helped incubate over the course of the last eight years. And it has forced out 476 Illinois public officials or public officials that have fled their post. They've resigned in the face (laughs) of asking questions and transparency about their spending. It's powerful. And we want to train parents all over the country to be able to hold their school districts accountable or any other unit of government locally. It starts locally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's great. And, and training is, is so important. Again, I think a lot of people just feel overwhelmed by what is happening and don't know what to do about it. And so, you know, we just learn to live with it. And that's that's not the right way, but that's where a lot of us are. Yeah. Right. So when you stand up, you know, it ha- the, you know, the powers that be, even locally, they know how to try to silence you. And we teach you that actually under the law, as it's currently written, you have the power. They've forgotten hmm. they work for you. So our training right. properly orients the relationship that you're the boss and, and you deserve answers to your questions. And we teach you how to get those answers. And when you get the answer, oftentimes 
you know, you create a new day. You create a ton of media, yeah. a white hot spotlight. People flee their posts, and new new blood is able to move up. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, let's let's get to the most recent event that's happened. Uh, you know, kind of in your life with Forbes. You've written many many articles for them. You've represented them. You have a column there. They canceled your column because of your reporting. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah. So, Dr. Anthony Fauci we found is the top paid federal bureaucrat. He's also the most visible. So if you know he's the top paid, you may not have known it was us at openthebooks.com, but I broke that Mm -hmm. in my Forbes Mm -hmm. column in January of 2021, a year ago. Obviously Mm -hmm. he's the most visible. And what that means to me is all of us have an obligation to give him oversight. So for 13 months, our organization's investigated the Fauci financials and I published what we learned in my column at Forbes. So when I did that in January, just a couple of weeks ago, here's what happened. The National Institutes of Health, they loaded a big artillery shell in their gun. They fired it at the C-suite of (laughs) Forbes. Forbes quickly folded and my column was terminated. Many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. We've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. So <laughs> that begs the question, um, why? Why Why would Forbes decide that they don't want transparency and reporting? Clearly, the Forbes editors did not like our financial oversight of Fauci. Now, that said, they have left my author archive up, so you can read all of it on the Forbes platform, yeah. uh, and that's a good thing. But, but here's how I know that. Uh, I published three pieces on Dr. Fauci in three weeks. Each of those three pieces from December through, through the middle of January this year made national and international news. We found that if he retired and he's 81, he's been there 53 years or whatever in the federal government, and the public opinion polls showed that 52% of the Americans wanted him to retire, including a third of Democrats. So we, we estimated his pension. And lo and behold, it'd be the largest federal pension in history. He would retire north of $350,000 a year in his first year with cost of living increases for the rest of his life. So on wow. day one, nearly paid wow. to stay home in retirement, nearly 1000 bucks a day, over three years, over a million dollars of retirement pension. That was a big story. And then U.S. Job. Senator Roger Marshall had Fauci under oath in the Senate hearing. He cited my column, Forbes, which was my column, had the big check of Fauci displayed in the background and quizzed him on his financial disclosures. And Marshall knew that our organization had to file a federal lawsuit to try to get Dr. Anthony Fauci's disclosures. And our lawyers, our judicial watch, we filed that in October. 
And National Institutes of Health admit they're holding 1,200 pages subject to our lawsuit on Fauci's financials. Now think wow. about that. The latest COVID aid bill spent nearly $2 trillion and was only 600 pages. There's 1,200 mm. pages of Fauci financials. So when Fauci in the Senate hearing said, wow. my, my financials are publicly available, it just wasn't true. So of course, right. I wrote a column at Forbes immediately. No, Fauci's financial disclosures are not online. Why doesn't the National Institutes of Health release them? And when uh, Marshall followed that Senate hearing up with a demand letter, within 24 hours, Fauci did finally provide 106 pages of financial disclosure that was not redacted. And I wrote another column telling people on breaking news, national story, this was one of the biggest stories in the country, our column was uh, the foundation of all the oversight in the Senate hearing. And so obviously I wrote about, I stayed up all night, quantified, summarized Fauci's financial disclosures that he had released. I got a note from uh, a Forbes editor, a a top one, that said, three columns on Fauci in three weeks? Eh? Okay, so look, Forbes has 1,600 articles on Hmm. Dr. Fauci. I don't really think they're worried about the number three. (laughs) Right, right. So uh, then the National Institutes of Health wrote a quote-unquote corrections email with no substantial corrections. I was able to quickly add some context. I think I changed one word from Dr. Fauci, collected some honorarian gifts of small value, and I I changed that to reported uh, honorary uh, gifts of small value. It was a difference without a distinction. Um, right. But they copied the top dog at Forbes, Randall Lane, the chief content officer and the editor of the entire Forbes platform. You don't do that on a ticky-tack uh, correction email. That email's right. true purpose was pressure. And sure enough, within 24 hours, I got a call from my Forbes editor saying that you can't publish. He barred, you know, Forbes barred me from publishing on Fauci any longer. They said, for the first time ever in eight years, I've put up 206 pieces. I got about 17 million page views on those pieces. Uh-huh. I mean, the content really wow. resonated. They never had any clear yeah. topics before, but they they had me, they had uh, said that I needed to clear each topic going forward, which I tried to do, but they went silent on me and then 10 days later terminated the column. Now, the day they terminated the column, they showcased with a special promotional citation a quote-unquote editor's pick on the Forbes platform that Dr. Fauci's picture is going to be hung in the Smithsonian. So they're covering Dr. Fauci. They just didn't want to cover him from a financial oversight perspective. I've asked this question a lot. This question is asked often. I'm sure you've been asked this question many times, and you can't know the answer. So I'll ask you a question you can't possibly know the answer to. But what is behind that? Why is the public media or mainstream media, which Forbes really has never been part of the mainstream media, but I guess it is now. Um, Why are they protecting Anthony Fauci? Why are they preventing not even, you know, a hit piece on him, but reporting on uh, what he actually did? Why, why would Forbes care enough to protect him? What's behind that? Right. My column quite simply just followed the money. It was one of the top national right. news stories in the country, and it was not political. So your question is, is, is spot on. 
So here's how I would answer that. Today, unelected bureaucrats like Anthony Fauci have commandeered the federal authority and power structures. Right. For instance, right. you know, according to our data at NIH, National Institutes of Health, they have 86 public affairs officers. What do they do all day? Fauci does all the media. You know, we wow. quantified the eight first 18 months of the pandemic. He did 400 media events. You don't have any time to follow the science if you're doing 400 media events. Sure. I know what that right. looks like. You don't have any time for anything else. It's just prep for the next media event. That's it. Right. So right. we, but what we do learn during this process is that six of those 86 public affairs officers, the top six, the executives, two directors, two bureau chiefs, two of their top public affairs officers, they were the ones that wrote that email to Forbes. Mm. So, you know, they're using at least a bit of their time to pressure mainstream national news organizations like Forbes. And unfortunately, when Forbes folds, it empowers and emboldens Right. Bureaucrats, like at the National Institutes of Health, to keep going. And that's, in a nutshell, why I had to come forward and tell my story. I didn't really want to, I don't really believe that, you know, Forbes was a good home to me. Uh, Forbes is not the enemy here. It is sure. the National Institutes of Health and big government, the size, scope, and power, which is growing exponentially in this country, and the people need to know about it. Uh, so... It makes sense to me why the National Institute of Health would run cover for Fauci. That makes sense to me. Why they would pressure someone like, you know, or something like Forbes. That makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is why Forbes would not delete their email as soon as it came in and move on with their lives. This is what I'm having a hard time understanding is why, why they fold. What leverage do they have over a media organization like Forbes? That's what's so hard for me to understand. Right. And so I, I have the same questions. And because if you really think about it, here's what happened. Uh, Forbes knew that we were pursuing via the lawsuit another 1,200 pages of Fauci's financials. So Forbes could have put the power of the platform behind our effort to go after Fauci's right. financial documents that are hidden at the agency. But instead right. they chose the opposite. They went after my column instead. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, again, this is a problem, I think, that if we didn't know existed two years ago, it's, it's been front and center throughout the pandemic, throughout you know, the regulations and um, all the stuff that we've been living through. How do we dig out of this? How do we get to a place where we, the people, can reclaim our voice and reclaim media is it that we just go, okay, Forbes, you're now over here with CNN and MSNBC, and we don't trust you anymore. We're going to other places. Uh, what, what do Americans do to reclaim really truth and integrity in the media and in reporting? So you just have to raise your voice. Everyone has to speak, and everyone has to hold government accountable. It's back to, you know, yeah. when Reagan, uh, in his farewell address— he reminded everybody why the administration was so successful because they re-empowered people. And Reagan said, you know, That's good. citizens remembered. They're driving the car, 
government's the car, the citizen is the driver, and you're supposed to tell government how fast to go, where to turn, and most importantly, when to stop. And if you're not doing that, then that's when, you know, we've been busy with our own lives and we, we actually believe that if you go into public life, if you go into public service, you're there to serve the people. Well, it turned out that's just not true. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Adam, I'm, I'm so thankful for the work that you guys have been doing. It, it's funny, you mentioned a few times, uh, people may not know we were the ones behind this, but this is what we did. And every example you gave, I'm like, I had no idea you guys did that. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. I just didn't know that was you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Um, tell our listeners and viewers where they can go to follow you and the work that you're doing, um, how they can follow the work of Open the Books and uh, whatever else you'd like to point them to. Well, thank you. We, we literally have 500 investigations coming down the pike here in 2022. Unbelievable. And I'm looking for a, a new home to publish these investigations, and we should have some announcements soon. But in the meantime, we're going to publish Great. all the original reporting right on our own website at OpenTheBooks.com. So just you'll, when cute. you come to the website, there's a pop-up. You can key your email address, and we send out an email a week, and that keeps you updated on everything that we're doing. This is so important. If we're not informed, then uh, we go along with whatever the government tells us. We've done that for a long time. I think as a country, we're waking up, but we need information, and uh, you're providing it. Thank you so much. Adam Andrzejewski, thank you for what you're doing, and thanks for uh, talking to us for a few minutes today. Appreciate it. Outstanding. Thank you. Thank you to Adam for coming on and uh, spending some time breaking these issues down for us. Uh, I told Adam when we were done with the interview, uh, I could spend hours just running down these different trails that he presented so many issues at work. And I'm very, very grateful as an American (laughs) that he and his organization and, and others like him, of course, are doing the hard work, are gathering the data, and then are presenting it, presenting it in a way that we can take and use it. We talk about navigating an ever-changing culture. Our country is changing. And one of the ways we can get control of how it changes and where it ends up is by having the data, the information we need to make good decisions about our elected officials. So thankful for Adam and appreciate you joining us. This is a very important episode. I hope that you will share this out with the folks that you know, people that need this information, may not have listened to it, share this out with them. That would be fantastic. And again, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Look forward to talking to you next time. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.